How patient should investors in offshore drilling be on this energy edition of Industry Focus? Greetings, fools. I am Sean O'Reilly, joining you here from beautiful Alexandria, Virginia at Full Headquarters. And to my left is the incomparable Tyler Crow. How are you, sir? Doing pretty well. We're missing Taylor today. It's kind of like, it looks like the summer rotation has been going on. You're gone, or I'm gone, or Taylor's gone. It's going to be a, it's a summer thing. And I am sorry for missing last uh, last week's episode. I was on the sunny beaches of Florida, but I also wanted to congratulate I you on... I wouldn't say I was missing it, Sean. Well, uh, I did want to congratulate you on uh, getting hitched Thank recently. Thank you very much. Well, it's a good time. Your poor, your poor, your poor wife. Oh, yeah, I'm sure she's suffering already. Um, so today we, uh, first and foremost, I actually wanted to talk about a little bit of news. Um, and it seemed odd to me because it's like more money than the stock's ever traded for. But Williams Companies rebuffed a $64 share buyout offer from competitor Energy Transfer Partners LP. And uh, I looked at their 52-week high from last year, you know, when oil was at 100 bucks and all this stuff. And uh, it was like $61. So they're saying that the $64 offer drastically undervalues the company and the value they expect to realize with all these projects. Seems a little optimistic to me, based upon just future estimates of earnings and all this stuff. Why am I wrong? What do you think? Um, hmm. I don't necessarily say you would wrong, you were wrong. Uh, one thing to to you know consider when we're looking at this: this was an unsolicited offer. This is kind of like you know somebody walking up to you on the street and saying, "I want your jacket off of your off your back right now." And I'll give I'd immediately two hundred and fifty dollars like, for it. I'd immediately be like, "Why?" Exactly. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I'm not. I have no insider information on this. I want to be clear with everybody. But part of me, when I hear it was an unsolicited offer, I kind of get that feeling it's the same thing. Like Energy Transfer walks in and says, I'm going to give you $64 per share for what you guys own. And they're like, uh, uh, I, I don't know. Oh, uh, uh, I'll get back to you on that. And it was kind of like a, you know, they immediately after started saying, we're going to reassess what this is. They say they're, that it was because it was undervalued, and is, that's I, just a negotiation tactic. It, it sounds mean. like a negotiation okay. tactic, if you ask me. Because if you look at the deal itself, it looks pretty damn good that's, for yeah. a shareholder of Williams Company. Um, not just Williams Company, but also uh, Williams Partners partnership. Uh, pri- part of this deal that Energy Transfer is saying they want to buy Williams Company is saying you have to stop your acquisition of your partnership you know the current plan for williams partners or, or williams companies right now is to buy the remaining shares of its partnership and to lower its cost of capital and kind of make it more of an efficient restart operator the, restart kind of, the clock restart the, the clock and depreciation all those cool <laughs> things that we talked about a little while ago but energy transfer says no we like incentive distribution rights. If you look at the model that they have done over the years uh, with Energy Transfer Partners, with Sunoco Logistics Partners, and every other MLP that they have ever purchased, the the parent company, Energy Transfer Equity, doesn't want to own any shares of limited partner. It normally actually will trade them down and give them back to Energy Transfer Partners or give them back to somebody else and say, you can have them we just want the incentive distribution rights. It's kind of a great way of basically owning nothing and getting a ton of money for it. So as part of this deal with Energy Transfer Equity, they are saying to Williams Partners, stop your deal uh, to buy out your limited partnership and we will 
basically absorb you as is and let people of Williams Partners kind of keep that position as a uh, limited partnership. And for anybody who is a unit holder of, of Williams Partner, this actually looks kind of cool because if the deal goes through where they have to uh, be acquired by Williams Companies, they will have to trade up to uh, from an MLP to a C-Corp, which means that they invoke the wrath of the taxman. Naturally. And so – you know, it looks from a unit holder perspective, it looks kind of good to take the energy transfer deal. And at the same time, if you're Williams Company, this thing is a lot of money. I mean, I mean, look at the stock, and investors don't seem to be sure that it's going to go through because it's at 57. They were offered 64. Theoretically, yeah. Williams is going to ask for more, so let's call it 70. Uh, even, even still, I mean, if it was at 70, that's a lot of money. I, that I mean, I'm looking at the earnings and the it's, stock. It's trading at what twenty times? I mean, I know we can go it's in trading, and out about gap. Here's, but. I I don't like to use earnings when it comes to master limited partnerships and stuff like that. I think one of the best ways to look at this is actually uh, price to tangible book value. Okay. And if you look at it right now, I believe it's more than twelve times. To- if you were to use that sixty-four dollar purchase price, it's more than twelve times tangible to book value for. Uh, Williams that company. sounds like a win to me. That's a lot of money. <laughs> that's a, that's a pretty high valuation. And if you look at um, basically the earnings power of, or the I guess we'll, we'll call it the EBITDA power, you know, the kind of the cash flow power of Williams Company and, and the projects that it has coming on the line for the next couple of years. If we were to use that sixty four dollar share price point and compare it on a enterprise value to EBITDA to its current. Uh, peers in the space, it would basically take them till about their EBITDA estimates of somewhere in the 2018-2019 range until it gets back into that sort of like valuation kind of uh, Finance range. 101, you know, if one of my finance professors from college are here, would be like, and you have to discount that, of course, today at a reasonable interest, so 7 so, 8% or something. So it's, it, it's a really good deal. I'm wondering why they turned it down. And, yeah. And, I, I, more than anything, I feel like it just kind of threw them for a loop. It was like one of that that unsolicited deal that you know, like energy transfer ran into the CEO on the street and says, "I will give you sixty four dollars now." And they're like, "I, I just uh, I'm still wearing the coat. I don't know what to do. Make sure there's nothing valuable in the pockets and give." What it to if them? it rains while I'm still out? <laughs> Good stuff. Well, uh, the big news of today that I uh, I really want to talk about because it's a really interesting uh, point is you know all this debate about how long oil prices are going to stay low. Still at sixty bucks, we're at a hundred. You know, eight months ago, this, that, and the other thing. Um, but a lot of projects, particularly offshore ones, I mean, this you're talking five, ten years of planning and development, and I mean that's where we're finding the biggest uh, deposits of oil these days. And uh, I was very curious to see. Where you think the offshore driller, you know, offshore rig, you know, drillers are just positioned going forward because these stocks have been decimated. But if you take a step back and think, okay, where are we in five years, which is what actually matters with these guys, is it that bad? Oh, that's a really loaded question, isn't it? Good thing we have plenty of time, right? Plenty uh, of time. I, I got about 10, 10 minutes left. Oh, on. man. Yeah. 10 minutes. Okay. So. If you look at what people are saying, uh, you look at industry analysts, you look at executives, you look at anybody in the space right now, they're basically saying, come 2016, in the middle of 2016, dead in 2016, that should be – we're still going to be on the decline in the offshore oil mar- – offshore rig market until then. Um, 
In terms of rates. In terms of rates, in terms of probably companies not wanting to put on a whole bunch of new contracts during that time because they kind of want to see how everything shakes out. You know, obviously at oil prices where they are, it's not the best time to be exploring and producing or developing projects offshore because it doesn't seem as lucrative. But at the same time, when you're developing those sort of projects, you can't be basing it on today's oil prices entirely because five years from right. now that it, we can't assume that. And a lot of these guys have backlogs, right? right? I mean, to the bearish case's credit, companies have been slashing capital budgets, but they haven't been slashing these offshore multi-year things. It's more than the domestic North American yeah, land-based that's, stuff. That's, those are the easy things to cut really quickly right now. And right. If you look at a lot of companies that drill offshore, they're not highly reactive, oh man, oil prices are going down, we have to slash our budgets to bargain basement prices. You're looking at national oil companies and you're looking at the integrated majors, the Exxon Mobiles of the world, somebody like that. And when you when you consider that, they're a little bit more patient. They're, you know, they're going to tone things down a little bit, trim a little bit off the edges where they're like, you know, we don't have to start this project today. We can, you know, move it a year from now and they'll be okay. But in large part, I think one of the things that they're really looking for is seeing what they can get out of these people. And they understand that, you know, it might take a little bit more than a year to get that out of them. Uh, One thing that has happened recently, if you look at somebody like a a Transocean, um, they saw a bunch of contract extensions on some of their um, existing fleet. Basically, things that they have on the, out on the water today have been getting you know three, five, six months extensions on things. And uh, Ensco saw some similar results. That sounds good. Am it I wrong? sounds like- good. It's not great, but basically, it's kind of a way of a national oil company keeping the water, testing the waters a little bit. It's like oh, it's like streaming along not, a little bit. Yeah, see, we're yeah. not gonna. You know, start a new project where we need one of your new rigs and establish a new contract. We're just going to kind of keep this one working a little bit longer because it's already money that we're spending, and you know we can do it in a, in a more efficient way this way. Because hey, we'll keep your rig working if you're willing to take a few, you know, ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars a day off of that day rate, which we did see on some of these recent contracts. So, you know. Nobody's really doing anything big, no, nothing too aggressive. And until we see that major asset turnover, which we're going to see, there's a lot of old rigs out there. They're going to go away. It's got to make space for a lot of these new rigs that are under construction. Once that goes away and demand for oil, the price of oil goes back up a little bit more, we anticipate that it will go back up. There's no guarantees, but there's a pretty good chance that it will based on where it is today. If that were to happen, then we could start to see that those contracts start to get filled again. So what's this I hear about like you got these like the transoceans of the world that have really old fleets that need to go away, like you just said, and uh, guys that have brand spanking new rigs with the newest technology and all this stuff, and uh, the pricing starting to become you know two tiered, right? Um, how worried should I be if I own some of these older fleets? Because that sounds bad. It depends not just on the age of the fleet, but how the company plans to deal with that fleet. 
um, Transocean, like you said, they have a lot of really old things. Yeah, and I don't mean to pick on anybody, yeah, but that just popped in mind. They yeah. have a lot of old rigs, but at the same time, they have a lot under construction, and it, they appear to have a clear path of we are going to get rid of these old rigs. They have announced plans to scrap 20 rigs off of their current fleet in order to make room for these new ones, and they don't really see the necessity of hanging on to them for much, much longer. They, it seemed, you know, with, um, what is it, former National Oil Varco CFO has been, take has taken the leadership position at Transocean, and that's been one of his big things is cost-cutting, managing that fleet, getting it ready for the next wave. And that is a little bit more commendable than somebody who has an old fleet that doesn't really seem to have a clear path forward with new ones. Uh, I, you know, maybe I'm pointing fingers a little too much, but I'm looking at somebody <laughs> like a diamond offshore. You know, older rigs, no real plan to bring on any new ones. Just crossing your fingers. Yeah. Um, they, they've done a lot with revamping older older assets and keeping them working for a long time, but you can only do that for so long. You can only take so many puffs off the butt of a cigar before right. they're gonna, it's going to go away. The big majors that are paying these people the day rates, they can be pickier with, you know, and say, eh, we'd really like the newer one, right? Yeah, I mean, why not? I mean, if there's so many, I think what most recently IHS Sarah said the util, global utilization rate of deep offshore rigs is, including everybody, not just the companies that we talk about, but there's a whole bunch of private companies yeah. and uh, companies that are not traded on the U.S. stock exchange. If we were to look at the whole global fleet, we're talking a utilization rate in the fifties. That's which is quite low. It, it's a buyer's market. Yeah. It's about if I'm looking at that and I say I can get a, I can get a rig for hundred thousand dollars less than six months ago. Maybe if I wait a little longer, I can get an extra fifty thousand off of it. So it gives then you them, start stringing people along for six string months. String people along a little bit longer. So if I am an investor looking at this space. There's a couple things you have to consider. You have to consider time horizon. If, you know, if you're only in this for one or two more years, you know, maybe somebody coming up on retirement who doesn't really want uh, you know, looking at maybe somebody who's play, paying a dividend and saying, "Oh, this looks like a decent dividend. I can hang, you know, hang on to this for one or two years and get some income payments." I wouldn't be too certain on that. Uh, the next Two, three, even four years looks certainly much less uh, certainly less certain. That sounds actually horrible when I say it out loud, but it doesn't look as certain. Um, however, if you look out on the long-term time horizon, uh, oil and gas production from the offshore region is going to be a growing portion of total oil and gas production. Uh, we talked earlier before the show about Russian Arctic oil. It's going to be play a large component of it. Um, Further deep offshore. Shell's doing that through, I think, of the Obama Shell's administration. Doing it. Yeah. Exxon Mobil's try has been trying for years to work with Rosneft, although with the sanctions and stuff like that, it's a little tough. Offshore Africa is looking huge, both west and, uh, west for oil, east for uh, natural gas. There's still a lot of oil left in the Gulf of Mexico, and you know if Brazil can ever get its act together with Petrobras, and there is a ton of oil there too. So it's going to play a growing role in overall production, and we're going to need these rigs five, ten years from now. So if you're willing to wait out the commodity cycles, which can take a long time, um, there is some a lot of potential there, especially when you look at the way that some of these companies are priced today. 
However, you have to realize that you're going to be riding a really, really long bet on this one. And don't going into it, be ready to wait a very long time. Don't, you know, get too antsy with it. Very good. Well, thank you for your thoughts, Mr. Crow. That is it for us fools. But before we go, I want to make our listeners aware of a very special offer for all industry-focused listeners. If you found this discussion informative and you're looking for more foolish stock ideas, Stock Advisor may be the service for you. It is our flagship newsletter started more than 10 years ago by Motley Fool co-founders Tom and David Gardner. We are offering the lowest price out there for industry-focused listeners. It is $129 for a two-year subscription to Stock Advisor. You'll get two stock recommendations every month with insight from a team of analysts. Go to focus.fool.com to take advantage of this deal. Once again, that is focus.fool.com. And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to email us at if at fool.com. We would love to hear from you. And as always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against those stocks, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear on this program. That's it for us, Fools. For Tyler Crow, I am Sean O'Reilly. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! <laughs>